0: Would you open your Bibles again, please, to 1 John chapter 3. And today I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. That will be our focus. 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that as we come to your word that you will uh, burn it into our hearts and uh, God may we confess that it's true and it's for our good and for your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You no know, salvation that the Bible describes for us is it's a very narrow kind of salvation in in this sense. The the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, unto good works. That issue has been perpetually misunderstood throughout the centuries. Uh, Think of it like this. Think of of a narrow path, maybe two feet wide. It's high up. It's on a ridge. And... On one side of it, let's say the left side, um, the path, if you look down, there's a sheer drop of a 1,000 feet. And at the bottom is boulders and sharp rocks. If you fall over that that side, it's instant death. It's it's destruction for sure. Uh, But on your right side, it's the same way. There's another sheer drop, 1,000 feet, boulders, sharp rocks at the bottom if you fall off that way destruction It's death. It's fatal. A misstep either way is fatal. It means utter ruin. And so it is with this salvation issue. Uh, think of it this way. On one side, you've got this era of works righteousness. There are people and the Bible, New Testament especially, describes people like this. Book of Galatians is one of the classic books that talk about this, where people like the Judaizers were saying, Oh, yeah, you need Christ to be saved, but it's not enough. You've got to add to that. You've got to add merit to it by things that you do. And, of course, Paul says if you hold to that or if you teach that, you're damned. If that's what your heart belief is today, like, okay, I'm not rejecting Jesus. I, I accept what he did on the cross, for forgiveness of sins. But that's not enough. I've got to add to it. My merits have to add to that in order for me to be saved. Now, a big part of Christendom believes that so-called Christendom, Um, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy believes that Christ's death on the cross is not enough. You have to add to that in order to be saved. And of course, the liberal churches do that, too. Uh, if you preach the true gospel in a in a typical liberal church they're very angry at you by saying that Christ alone can save so that that's one way works righteousness that's that's off on one side of the road down into the rocks of destruction uh, but the, the other side of the path is this it's the it's what we call antinomianism against law and what that means is this it means that you say I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is God, the son. I believe that he died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day. I believe it was a substitutionary atonement. I believe all that intellectually. I believe every bit of that. But I also believe that when I believe in him, I can't add anything to what he has done on the cross, which also means I can live any way I want to live. Because after all, I've been saved by grace alone and my works don't add anything to it. That's the other, plunge to destruction, and that's the one that John's dealing with here in these verses, these verses 4 through 10. And what we're seeing is that the proof is in the practice of how you live. Um, This is what the Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, is telling us. He's saying lifestyle, your attitudes, the things you do, um, what motivates you, that tells whether or not you're a genuine Christian. Now, last time, we were saying from verses 7 and 8 that there are people who are going to try to deceive you about that. They're going to say it's not true. In fact, Paul deals with it in Ephesians 5. He says, because of this, he says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. He says, and he says let no one deceive you about this, because he's just named a bunch of uh, sins and, that people persist in. And he says, people are going to say, don't worry about that. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Some people are going to try to convince you that how you live has nothing to do with salvation. Uh, there are some large, well-known mega churches in our country that are teaching this this very thing. That you can have a certain lifestyle and you can keep it. You don't have to repent and, and forsake it by the grace of God. You can live that way and you can be, you can be right with God. But, To follow such people is to be led astray. Uh, Jude puts it this way in Jude verse 4, quoting the the NLT. He says, these false teachers say, quote, that God's grace allows us to live immoral lives. That's what the false teacher teaches, that God's grace allows us to live immoral lives. So let's just look at the warning a little bit more here. Uh, He says, Don't believe your lifestyle has nothing to do with salvation. Now, here's a classic example of this. If you want to turn there just for a second to Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus depicting at the end of the age on on the day of judgment in John 7. I mean, Matthew 7, verse 21. By the way, I heard R.C. Sproul say one time about these three verses, 21, 22, and 23. He said to him, these are the most frightening verses in the New Testament. (laughs) Because these people here are deceived and they think that they're saved, even though, well, let me just read what Jesus says to them. First of all, he says in 721 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they're Orthodox, they, they believe the truth, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many, not a few, not, not 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 the occasional outlier, but many people are going to be in this boat. Many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, the very thing the Apostle John is talking about here in verse 3, lawlessness, living a life that's ultimately a lawless life. Uh, The reality is verse 7, 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness instead of lawlessness is righteous as he is righteous. That's another one of those brief, condensed descriptions of a Christian in verse seven, just like back in. It's almost a virtual repetition of of first John two twenty nine. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Um, Again, look back at chapter two, verse seventeen. I think because churches like this one and. Others that stress rightly so that salvation is by grace alone. I think there's a danger and a fear even of quoting verses like 1 John 2:17 that can happen because look what John says here. He says the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever believes the gospel he doesn't say that in this passage, does he? Well, that's obviously true. But what he says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus says that about the the last on the last day of the resurrection. He says those who have done good will come forth to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Jesus and the biblical writers are not afraid to connect how you live to whether or not you're really saved. That's what Jesus does about the resurrection. If you've done, he's saying if the practice of a person's life has been doing evil, it's the resurrection of condemnation. If the, if the practice has been righteousness, resurrection of life, doing. In fact, that's what Jesus said there back in the passage I just read from Matthew chapter seven. He said, let me read it again. Maybe you missed this part because I wasn't emphasizing this part. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he literally who is doing the will of my father who is in heaven. He again connects it to the lifestyle. That's how Jesus describes a genuine believer as the one who is actively doing the will of my father in heaven. Christians are people who are as a pattern are about the master's business. What do bees do? Bees are about the business of bees. What do ants do? do? They're about the business of doing what ants do. Likewise, a Christian is someone who's continuously occupied with doing the father's business. That's what Jesus said when he was a 12-year-old, right? He said to his parents when they said, you know, you have troubled us. You know, we didn't know where you were. And he said, didn't didn't you know that I had to be literally about the things of my father? That's what a Christian is. Jesus put it this way during his public ministry. He was in Samaria, and his disciples When they came back from the village to buy food, he was there with that Samaritan woman and they said to him, you know, aren't you going to eat or did you already? eat?" And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That describes the the way we are supposed to be growing my food. The thing that empowers me is to be doing his will and to finish what he sent me to do. First John 3:7 is very much like Romans 6:18, where it says, "We've been set free from sin's slavery, and we've now become slaves of righteousness." The Bible's very big on that. William Hendrickson said, "Those who have, in, who have entered the service of righteousness enjoy true liberty, namely freedom from sin, not, however, in the sense that they no longer sin at all, but in the sense that sin is no longer their master. Uh, Jay Adams used to put it this way. He said, when is a train freest? Now, uh, we did a spectacular, amazing thing this week. We went to Brownville, north of Milo. We went to the Canadian Pacific Rail. Uh, the train was going through there, the Christmas train, they call it. My brother called me up and he said, we're well, going up there. Do you want to, It's 30 miles from where we live. He says, you want to go up there and see it? And I said, sure, what else we got to do? So we went up and there's this train, about 14, 15 cars. They're all decorated, flashing and so forth and so There's probably two or 3,000 people there uh, in Brownville Junction and freezing to death. But this train came through and all lit up and there it was. But, you know, that train might have said, You know, I'm tired of doing this. They've come from the West Coast and they've come all the way over. They've come down through Jackman um, and so forth and so on. I want to be free. I'm getting off these tracks. (coughs) Now the train's really free, isn't it? Can't do anything. A believer is free when he's no longer a slave to sin, when he's living righteousness. That's when you're truly free. And we all know that by experience. Sin is not a freeing thing. Sin complicates life terribly. And it's debilitating. And it's a terrible kind of slavery. A genuine believer will have a growing, practical righteousness. But look at John's word about this false professing believer. That one that says, I can live any way I want to live. Look what he goes on to say there in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning. He's not doing very well. No. He says something very blunt and shocking here. He says he's of the devil. Yeah, that means even even so-called good people who outwardly have a facade of righteousness, but they reject Jesus. He says they're of the devil. That's straightforward. That's stunning. And it's probably not stunning to us evangelicals, to because we. We know this. We've, we've read this so much. We know that if a person's not saved, he's of the devil. We know the Bible teaches that. But to the world, to go up to a respectable person who works and pays his taxes and is faithful to his wife, and, but he's rejecting Jesus, and to say, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're of the devil. That is a stunning, insulting thing. It, it's part of the offense of the cross. You're of the devil. You are of the devil this morning if you are saying, I can believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live any way I want to live, and I have no intentions of repenting of things that the Bible says I shouldn't be doing. You likely are a child of the devil because it does not line up with what John is saying here, the inspired apostle. If you're hungering and thirsting after unrighteousness, you've got a real problem. So this person who lives unrepentantly, he's like the devil. And John says the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Not quite sure what that means, where he means what beginning he's talking about. Does he mean from the time the devil fell? Does he mean from the time that the devil is first revealed in the Bible? He's sinning. But whatever, the devil's a long-term, long-time sinner. And he says that the person who's living like that is reflecting uh, the devil. Uh, Listen to Jesus talking to these respectable Jewish leaders, what he said to them. He keeps telling them that you're doing the deeds of your father, but he hasn't said who he means. And the first thing, the way they respond to that is, well, Abraham is our father. And then he says, well, if you were the children of Abraham, you'd do the works of Abraham. He's, He's implying you're not doing the works of Abraham. In other words, he's saying like father, like son. But then he goes on to say again, you do the deeds of your father. And then they throw in a little snide insult there. They say, well, we weren't born of fornication They're probably implying. But you were he wasn't. But that's what probably the rumor that went around was because of his virgin birth. They said, we have one father, God. And then listen to what Jesus says. This is shocking stuff. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Here he says it right out. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Don't you find that remarkable how he says that there? He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He doesn't say, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He says, it's the very fact that I'm speaking truth that you can't connect with it because you are of the devil. The devil's a liar and there's no truth in him. Then he goes on to say, and if I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? He who hears, and there he's using that word here in that full sense of heeding—not just hearing—it goes in, it, it does all the things physically, but he means heeding. He who hears God's word, let me read that again. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. And like I said last week about not being deceived, if What I'm saying here, is you're you're sort of sitting, sitting there saying, well, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm all right with God. I believe in Jesus. I'm all set. So what if I and you name off some things that you do that, you know, the Bible condemns? Well, again, John says that that person, that kind of person is of the devil. So the warning, don't be led astray. Don't be don't be deceived into thinking that a person who professes to be a Christian and yet lives unrepentantly is on his way to eternal life, as a, and he's a child of God. John says, no, that person's like the devil, who, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 and a quarter days of a year, he's, re- he's in heart rebellion against God. In fact, the sec- the, in 38 to think that personal lifestyle has nothing to do with salvation is to miss the point. That's what he says in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in this context, he's talking about destroying his works and God's elect people. That's why he came. That he might loose us from the works of the devil. This purpose statement here. We're told that Jesus came. Jesus came. Not only to deliver us from our sins, but to put it another way, he came to destroy Satan and his power. It's a destructive purpose that Jesus had in coming. That is to destroy the nefarious work of the devil, to loose us from him. Um, prior to our new life in Christ, we were ruined. We were headed for hell. Um, Again, these are truths that if you tell these things to the world, they, they think that you're a fanatic. For example, in Ephesians 2.2, 2, we're told that the prince of the power of the air, he's the spirit who is energizing the sons of disobedience. In other words, why, how are people motivated who are not saved? What energizes them? He says it's the, it's the prince of the power of the air. Or later in this first John chapter five, I think it's verse 19, he says, the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. You walk up to a person who doesn't profess Christ or who professes him falsely. And you say, you know, if you're not really a Christian, you know, you're under the sway of the wicked one. In fact, he's your God and he has blinded your eyes to the gospel. I wouldn't start off witnessing that way. Okay, I don't I'm not implying that. But if you get into a conversation with people and you begin to explain things to them and they begin to question, ask questions, and you tell them these things, it's, it's really quite shocking. That's how we once lived, Paul says. We lived according to the prince of the power of the air. And, of course, the world will scoff at that. But the Bible says this about the Christian. It says that we've been translated out of that kingdom of darkness and we've been translated into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We're no longer the we're no longer darkness, but we're light in the Lord. And one day, as it says here, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean for you and me? Well, he's already destroyed the, 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 the condemning power of sin in our lives. We'll never we'll never be condemned. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But one day we won't sin at all anymore. Never. And we won't want to sin. That thing that's still within us called the flesh that has that tendency to want to sin. It will be gone, either when we die or when Jesus comes again, whichever comes first. We don't know what that's going to be. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying. In fact, when in Romans 8, tells us we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, we'll, we'll, we'll be that finally one day, completely destroying the works of Satan. And yet for Satan himself and all of his, his demons... And those who follow him, we're told that Revelation 20:10, for Satan, it's the lake of fire, no rest day or night, but tormented forever and ever. Are you embarrassed to say that? Are you embarrassed to tell other people the Bible teaches that? I mean, I feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of telling modern man that Revelation 2015 says whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And in Revelation 14, it says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Now, we can either say, I just can't buy that. I don't believe it. Or we can say, this is God's word and I accept it. That's that's the truth. So. The more we understand Christ's purpose in coming into this world to destroy sin, to destroy the works of the devil, the more we should, we should desire to be delivered from the practice of sin. So the powerful, renewing work of God in the soul of a person has clear, tangible Obvious effects. And that's what he says as he repeats himself in verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident. It is manifest who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And now notice he 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 introduces a new issue here at, at the end of this. Nor is nor is the one who does not love his brother, by the way. Now, consider the born of God person there in verse nine. Now, by the way, did you did you see that this applies to every person who's born of God? He says all everyone, everyone. So everyone, of born, everyone who's born of God has this mark, this characteristic on some level. He is not literally he is not doing sin. And what a conflict that is in in the Christian's heart. I just referred to it a second ago, the flesh. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5.17. He says, for the desires of the flesh, let me just give you quickly three definitions of the flesh. You know, some Christians say this, and I don't want to pick at this, but some Christians say, well, I got the old nature and I got the new nature living in me. Well, you've actually got one nature, a human nature. That's what you've got. That human nature has been renewed in Jesus Christ. But one thing that did not happen when you were born again is God did not remove the flesh yet from you. He's not going to until you die or until Jesus comes again. And what is this thing called the flesh? Paul teaches it and Peter does too. It's that it's that remaining impulse that you have in yourself that I have in myself to do the wrong thing, to sin. As an impulse in me, there's a drive that I, in my renewed nature, hasn't been removed. I still got it. That I have a, this bias, this leaning toward being lawless. Um, it's, it's an inner disposition I still have, which shocks Christians when they first become believers. They, they, they know something's happened. They know something incredible has happened to them. But then all of a sudden they realize, oh, I still lost. I have a temper. I still tell lies. What's wrong? You still have the flesh. And this is what Paul says about it in Galatians 5. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, that Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ that now dwells in you. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to one another. Now, here's a purpose statement. I think it's oftentimes misinterpreted. He said they're opposed to each other so that you are kept from doing the things that you want to do. Now, you know a lot of people take that. A lot of Christians, they say, well, I want to do right, but I end up doing wrong. So these things are fighting in me and and I just don't do what's right. And they kind of connect it to Romans 7 and on. That's another whole issue. I don't want to get into that. But that's not what he's saying in Galatians 5. He's saying that God gave you the spirit so that you cannot do the things that you would otherwise do. You're not going to have that affair because the spirit of God is is working in you. And by by the spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body. You're not going to say that harsh word because the spirit of God is saying, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. You're not going to tell that lie. You're not going to say, well, you know, on the way to church this morning, must have. Saw some deer it must have been 10 and, you know, it was only three, but it sounds more spectacular if you say 10. You're thinking I've done that before, haven't you? You're doing that. Uh, a little while ago, Laura quoted a passage I was going to quote. The promise of the new covenant given five to six hundred years before it actually came to be And Ezekiel 36 says this. This is what's going to happen as you enter the new covenant by faith in Jesus. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is a living, responsive to God kind of inner being. Uh, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep them. You will keep my judgments and you will do them. Now, unless the Bible is just a bunch of religious words, that has to mean something. That has to mean that there's a change, uh, a continual change going on in our lives. Uh, Aaron referred to this last week when he led us in communion, uh, where it says that he can't go on sinning because God's seed remains And I agree with what Aaron was saying, that seed is referring to Christ and his spirit that now dwells in us, but that we can't go on in unbroken, hard hearted sin. He is not able literally to keep on sinning because of God's work through his son, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. See, if you've been born of God, it's a radical thing by radical. I mean, it's a root thing. It's a root issue. It's not like you come into a church you say, OK, I sign up for Christianity and you kind of just um, you paint on Christianity. It's just skin deep. Uh, you've you've gilded uh, with gold plating your person. Um, it's deep. It's life changing. And a change will begin to take place. I mean, my wife would tell you I'm far from perfect, but she will tell you this. She will tell you that I am not the same person that I was when I was 20. Because God is changing me by his grace. Haven't arrived, haven't come close to that. But I know that he's changed me. So, John is saying here in these two verses, these last two verses, that a born-again person will be clearly distinguishable from a person who's not born again. Just like you can tell the difference between a dead person and a living person. You can tell the difference. John Stott says God's children and the devil's children may be recognized by their behavior. That's what, God, what God's word teaches. You should be distinguishable. In fact, here's a classic passage that, that shows you the distinction from Galatians again. The acts of the flesh. Now we know what the flesh is, don't we? The acts of the flesh are obvious, John said, uh, Paul says. They are obvious. Then he gives us a whole list. Fornication, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, Paul says, as I did before. Now listen to this. I didn't put this in the Bible. The Spirit did through Paul that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But look what he goes on to say in contrast. But the fruit of the Spirit, and he's implying that's evident too, that's obvious, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. May we yield a bumper crop of those things. So, again, the question is, what marks you? What, mar- what marks me? Is it the acts of the flesh or is it the fruit of the spirit? You know, if you go into a supermarket, and let's say you go in with your wife, and you say, well, I'll, I'll get the produce, and she goes maybe up to the other side, of the dairy, where they make you walk through the whole store, so you want to buy everything on the way. <clears throat> So you're in the you're in the you go into the produce section and then you want to find each other after you so you both. Someone grabs a cell phone and or she grabs it and she calls you says, where are you? And so you look around and you say, well, there are grapes and there are bananas and apples and there's lettuce and celery. And I must be in the produce department. How can you tell? It's evident. That's how it ought to be in your life and my life. If we're Christians, it ought to be obvious. So, John is saying here there are only two classes of people in the whole world this morning, and he puts it this way, either the sons of God or the sons of the devil. You're in one camp or the other. And Jesus put it that way. He said at the end of the age, when he comes again, he says the good seeds, those are the sons of the kingdom, but the, the, but the tares, they're the sons of the wicked one. Two categories. They're the, they are the seed seed, Of the serpent. John Stott put it like this He said, Our parentage is either divine or diabolical. We should be coming into focus. Our lives should be. Well, that great man, John Newton, everybody knows him as a slave trader, but some people don't seem to understand that he was a pastor for 43 years after his conversion. He passed it for 43 years. And one thing that he did was he wrote a whole bunch of letters and they're still available online. They're worth reading his letters of of uh, counsel to people who wrote to him, troubled people. And one of those letters, he's got this famous, uh, well-known statement that he made. And it applies to what we've been looking at here in First John three. And I want to leave it with you so that if you're really a Christian, you'll be encouraged by what he says here. Here it is. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this jarring passage in 1 John chapter 3. It causes us to examine ourselves before you. May we all be able to say here, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone, and I'm trusting Jesus by his spirit to keep transforming my life in a very practical way and that the fruit of the spirit may become more and more evident in my life in a consistent way. We pray these things in his name. Amen.